Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. And I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number six, recorded in November 2018, and today I talk with Donna Goldsmith. Donna's a busy lady with three very unique roles. She's an ICU nurse at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. She's the executive officer of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group, and she and her partner Tony also run a wonderful Farmgate venture selling locally sourced fresh produce from a 1910 train carriage. In this episode, Donna and I talk about how her love of critical care nursing and experience as a research nurse has led her into the role of executive officer of one of the busiest and most productive intensive care clinical trials groups. About the challenges of maintaining clinical competency when working in the clinical environment part-time and how her experience as the mother of a sick neonate was utilised to full effect on a consumer advisory panel designing the new neonatal unit at Monash Children's Hospital. Donna also talks passionately about the importance of involving family in the ICU and strategies to involve families in patient care and how this then may help the transition to the ward environment for these patients. So grab a cuppa, sit back and enjoy this interview with Donna Goldsmith. Okay, so I'm here with Donna Goldsmith in Melbourne at the Anzac RC today. So thanks Donna for driving up from the Mornington Peninsula and we'll talk a little bit later on about your latest endeavour and um, how that's found you down that neck of the woods. (laughs) Thanks Rachel. So Donna is the Executive Officer of the Anzac's Clinical Trials Group um, and you know is one of the very important people, the glue that holds the place together. Um, but has a background not just as a researcher, um, but as an intensive care nurse. So I thought maybe we'll kind of start back at the beginning. <laughs> Did you go into intensive care nursing from the get go? Yeah. So um, I was um, I finished my graduate year in '94. And I was lucky enough to actually do a rotation through uh, both the emergency department and also the intensive care department at Knox Private Hospital in my Mm. graduate year. So it opened my eyes to a whole different level of nursing. So, um, but back then in the dark old (laughs) days, we got told that it was good to start applying for your um, postgraduate courses quite early Mm. because they were very hard to get into. Uh, so I did that straight away at the end of my graduate year and uh, I applied to every hospital and every university that, um, you know, because you got told to do that and uh, that, that they had a critical care course and obviously they had a change of heart and they accepted anyone in because <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately I got into everyone and they didn't do deferments at that stage. So I actually only worked in the general ward areas for a very short period of time. Mm. So I basically worked in the critical care area all my life. Mm. So because um, I got in that next year and went to St V's, chose St V's um, in Melbourne because they actually did a critical care course. So right. I did emergency, cardiothoracic ICU, general ICU, 
coronary care, everything. Mm. So, and uh, I loved emergency at Knox Private Hospital and the patients were nothing short of adorable there and so appreciative of your care and went to um, St V's and um, had a very different experience in the emergency department there. My first week I was sworn at on day one, spat at day two, day three I got stabbed. So it was a very different experience from having my name crocheted on hankies (laughs) by the patient. So I then, after the three months in the emergency department, somehow limped through that and, um, yeah, and then went to the ICU Mm. and went, oh, this is actually really cool. (laughs) So it was quite different. And I think every hospital has a very different culture and a very different feel and every department within each hospital Mm. has a different culture and a different feel. So... And then I was doing some agency shifts on top of um, just to get some exposure at other places and I fell across the Austin and was doing lots of work there and then ended up there the following year, back in 95, mm. 96. So, yeah, so I've been an ICU nurse since then and still am to this day. I was going to say, so you still yeah. are working at just, the Austin. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, so still at the Austin. I do um, one shift a fortnight clinically. And um, the staff are very kind and very gracious and remind me where everything is. And um, and in return, I remind them about when machines break down, how to do it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> so it's quite nice, mutual mm. um, sort of respect for each other. Yeah. As a, I'm almost treated like an elder over there. It's lovely. They're really kind to the me. Great states, states lady. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's great. But, yeah, so it's lovely being able to do that. It also helps me when I'm in my executive officer position mm. at the CTG, when I read clinical trials that come through, I can look and think, yeah, that that is possible or, or how are you actually going to do that because we don't do that anymore or yeah. is that clinically relevant anymore or will we have equipoise or mm. so it keeping my hand in that's probably then the Austin is my family but it's also and I love nursing but the number one reason why I probably do it is just to keep my hand in so that in my mm. main job at the ANZIC CTG that I have a really good understanding of what is clinically mm. relevant and possible so, yeah yeah. Because things change so Absolutely. quickly in our profession, Absolutely. don't they? <laughs> and you never would think that in intensive care. You'd just think, oh, my goodness, no, how can anything change? But even just, or things will get even more, a higher acuity. But in actual mm. fact, you know, we're ventilating less patients now than we ever have with high-flow nasal prong oxygen, mm. for example. And everyone used to end up with a tracheostomy back in the 90s, and now they're few and far between. So mm. it is quite different. Mm. yeah. It's interesting seeing change over time and sort of trying Absolutely. to yeah. reconcile where these ideas have come from, yes. where they'll go to next. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I had three years off. I worked at Nucleus Network Clinical Trials Group, a phase one and two clinical trials group um, here in Melbourne. And I worked there as the nurse unit manager for three years and I didn't do ICU in that time. And the changes just in those three years, mm. it's, I mean, it's hard coming back after maternity leave of 12 <laughs> months, but coming back after three years was... Mm. You know, but I was lucky enough to get have a supernumerary day and very quickly I went, oh, okay, so suctioning is still the same. Uh, turning alarms on and off is still the same. So the basics are still the same, yeah. but the way that we care for patients is actually very different. And I think 
we underestimate how much it has changed because mm. we're seeing it all day every day but when you have a big break like six months 12 months a year you really notice changes or trends in care patterns mm. definitely mm. Yeah. do you find working you know limited hours yes <laughs> challenging in yes. terms of keeping up to date with <laughs> absolutely change. Yeah. yes it's i've just recently done my performance appraisal again and one of the things is what have you done to increase your you know your keep yourself relevant and up to date and you know um keep yourself relevant and i'm i'm just doing well just to get there and remember where the pharmacy is and my logins and my passwords and um yeah it's it's a really challenging thing to do um and especially because i often do a late shift on the sunday and then an early shift on the monday i found that is now really helpful putting the two shifts Mm. together because i get to follow on with a patient because that was really hard I used to do every second Sunday late shift, but I never got to see a, a patient more than once, really. Yeah. So it was really, it is good. And the other thing is that in-service education generally doesn't happen that often on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> so I was missing out on that. So whilst I was meeting the Australian nursing requirements because I'm attending all these conferences, mm. it didn't mean that I was clinically as up-to-date as what I would have liked with that mm. particular unit, with my unit that I work in. So working the late shift and the early shift the next day, it meant that I got in service every Monday. So mm. that's been really helpful. But it, it took a few years to work that out, how to juggle that. And, you know, it means taking annual leave from ANZIC so that I can do my shift on the Monday. But it, it, it's... You know, ANZICS has been great. I think they can see the benefit to me working clinically and the Austin's been great in accommodating my rigidity in my shifts Mm. because obviously... You know, it's it's it is hard because they've got over two hundred nurses that they've got to try and fit rostering around. So, but at least I'm working a late shift and an early shift, a weekend and a day shift. Yeah. So I feel like I'm doing as much as I can to help them, but the continuity. But it, it's definitely now in a really good place. Mm. Like it works well doing that. So yeah, I think that's you know you've identified sort of a common problem in many places that. Although we're a 24-7 service, particularly somewhere like a critical care Mm. unit, Mm. um, often those resources and the extra education time or whatever is still only available Monday Monday to Friday. Friday. (laughs) Nine to five, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Look, the Austin is a fantastic place for that. They do have educators available on the weekend and um, on evening shifts. They now work Um, shift work themselves certainly when Mm. I did my critical care course the educators worked eight till four that Mm. was it the other thing is that they've moved a lot of the responsibility on to the clinical nurses and the clinical nurse specialists to do the education so there is more so in the last 12 months there is more education and in-service on the Mm. weekends as well and night duty ones those sorts of things so people are missing out less and less yeah um but yeah, it is still a big challenge. There's mm. no doubt managing the juggle of the personal, professional, and um, having more than one workplace is obviously really challenging as well. So yeah, yeah. but I'm I'm lucky that, um, you know, that I've got a really good relationship with all employers, and so that hopefully they can see the benefit of still having me. And mm. um, <laughs> and it, it is, I think, it's working for everyone. But yeah, yeah. I think having those. Um, you know, different skill sets from each yes. job. Um, nurses are very good at translating skill sets Absolutely. into different workplaces. Absolutely. How yeah. did you move from your clinical role into your research role initially? Yes, so that was a very long time ago as well. That was back in 1998. So there was very few research nurses anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it was often done by... Um, 
nurse unit managers or clinical educators, those sorts of people. Mm. So, um, but I was fortunate enough to be um, Ronaldo Belomo's first research coordinator back in 1998. And there are so many funny stories that I could tell you about the very steep learning curve that we have. But initially I shared an office with um, the clinical educator, mm. Ian Baldwin, and, um, and he was great. Like I'd never used an Excel spreadsheet. I'd never, because everything was done on paper. Nursing was yeah. a very hands-on, very practical, mm. and then we had our four-colour big pens, you know, click, 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 all the colours. Yes, one of those. <laughs> one exactly. of those, yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that was, so even just turning on the computers, nothing mm. was on the computer back then. So it was a really steep learning curve, but it was just the most amazing journey. And, um, yeah, it, it was fantastic so it started off as a part-time position and I was able to keep my clinical work part-time but it very quickly within three months it was up to full-time because we could justify the position back then there was lots of pharmaceutical research Mm. still available and um, so yeah it was a really quick balance a quick juggle between um, you know I'd work doing research in the morning and then I'd do a late shift in the afternoon at the same unit so it worked really well so and that was what I was actually able to do my honours year and then my master's in actually was Mm -hmm. on um, implementing a high dependency unit and then a medical emergency team so you know it was all but that was back in the days when there was Kathy Boyce at the Royal Melbourne and there was Lynn Murray and um, at the Alfred Mm -hmm. and uh, Bridget Roberts over in um, yeah in Perth and that was about it. Dorolyn mm. came soon after that, but there was not very many research coordinators yeah. Australia and I'm assuming New Zealand wide mm. back mm. then. So there wasn't really a lot of uh, many mentors, no. and we we sort of made it up as we went along. Everything was still according to GCP, um, <laughs> but you know just the way that you did things, your databases, you made yeah. them up yourself, and you did things as you went along, but. So one of my most memorable things, and it's a funny story that hopefully this will make some others laugh too, I had a, a study that I was doing as well as doing the pre-data collection for a MET program, and it was a pharmaceutical research study, and it was a particular study, and the name was Abracadabra, whatever it was, I don't want to say what it was. <laughs> um, and then it also, as you know, clinical trials often have three different names. Mm. You know, they're known by the company that they're sponsored by. So you're doing the Eli Lilly study or you're doing the um, Pfizer study or whatever. And then they've got the name of the drug that it is. So it could be a Zygris study or it could be this or that. And then they've always got an acronym. So when I first started, I actually set up three different folders <laughs> for three different studies, and it was the one study. But depending on what the CRA actually sent to me in the email was where I filed yeah. it. That was in the days when we printed off every email yeah. paper, hole punched it, and then put it in a folder. Yeah. So I had three different folders. And when the um, CRA came to the monitor, came to monitor me, she could not work out why I had divided these three different things. And I'd, she'd said she was coming from the abracadabra study and uh, so I got that folder and she wondered where the rest of it was. Yeah. And it wasn't until she came and monitored me that first time that I realised it was all in the one study. And you're probably not the only person to have done that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it still well, goes on today. <laughs> lessons, <isn't> it? <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was really interesting mm-hmm. that they call it three different things and mm-hmm. I thought it was three different studies. So yeah. There you go. <laughs> and I think that that's such a typical story. You know, you talked about how there was very few people in mm-hmm. the role in that in that that sort of time. Same when I started in mm. the early two thousands. Um, and I think you did kind of 
do the job as you thought it should be done Absolutely. according to the rules that were there. That's right. Um, but not with a lot of sort of collegial no, support. Absolutely not. Um, no, no. And I think hopefully nowadays, <laughs> um, with so many more research coordinators around the intensive care, yeah. um, and a lot more experience, of course. Mm. I think the thing that's different now, like for us, it was very hard because there was no one to mentor us or give us any supervision or any guidance, but we could build it at our pace. Mm. It it, it built as fast as we are. Now people are hitting the ground running. They need to be up to date. And how do you get that exposure without um, being exposed to it and Mm. doing the job? So it's actually, it's probably hard it's just as hard now but in a different way so we had no idea what we were doing um it was very safe and very ethical still but it it was really a trial by learning you Mm. really learnt as you went along whereas now the expectations are that you'll get a trial up and running within three months whereas it may have taken us six months to do it but there wasn't the hurry or the pace that it is now and it's the same in real you know in life outside of work now with phones and access to phones Mm. I mean we used to go home and you couldn't get access to your emails so you literally did go home and beautiful thing yeah it's sounding quite idyllic now isn't it but uh, but you did you definitely it was a very different world you used to get a lot more phone calls out of hours and driving a lot more for false negatives so a lot of screening that you'd say call me if a patient looks like they're suitable now we can look at what patients are doing on our phones you know we can track what their hemoglobin is or whatever you know you've as long as you've got your two-factor authentication and everything to get in the proper way the hospitals looked after all of that but now you can screen patients from anywhere Mm. and uh, and there might be some patients that you go that's great what about xyz and you know the bedside staff may misinterpret what you said so if you can look it up yourself it will save you a lot more time Mm. as well so there's positives and negatives for each way but um, the systems are definitely better to set up to succeed for research now Um, but you know we had the advantage of no one else was doing what we were doing so we had nothing to be no benchmarks nothing to compare so we just built it as fast as we could do you think the expectations on people in those research coordinator jobs are different now from Absolutely. both the maybe the investigator perspective, the management committee Absolutely. perspective? The family perspectives, everything. Yeah. Uh, consenting mm. is very different now. Um, you used to have two very uniquely different types of patients back in the 90s. Those that just said, yes, dear doctor, you're God, and I will let you do whatever you want to do. And then there was those that were like, oh, you're not using my relative as a guinea pig. They Mm. were sort of the two outcomes that you would get from consenting. Now you've got very active consumers who are very Mm. engaged in their own care, their relatives, the care of their relatives. They want to know more. They're educated. They can Google search everything. They want to know what the last study of that drug found and Mm. all these sorts of things. So I think it's where we are different as a human being race now. So it is very different. Mm. Um, So you've got to be a lot more aware and able to provide more information to families. And and also ethics committees are, you know, very different now. Mm. There's individual sites, individual networks, individual states, individual countries. And, you know, there's... You know, so many different ways that, you know, we're transferring data across and that all has to be approved and downloading information and we're following up for longer now. So then there's a whole nother level of intricacy there. Who does the follow up? Are they trained? Are they qualified? Who's doing it? Is it call centre? Is it you? Is it 
you know, there's a whole lot of things, whereas we used to literally just do 28 days with they alive or dead, full stop. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, it's quite different. Yeah. Now, it so. opens up a whole can of worms, doesn't mm. it, mm. Um, at a site <coughs> level, um, mm. particularly around who you employ into those jobs. Absolutely. Um, how many hours, how mm-hmm. you fund them. <laughs> yes. And, and it's a very um, it's a very attractive role to mm. someone now looking from a clinical bedside who's working rotational shift rostering and they see a research coordinator come in and supposedly work, you know, the Monday to Friday, nine to five. Now, anyone who's done the job realises that the last time that they had a manicure was before they were a research coordinator, that's for sure. So there is no spare time. It is a really hard, a really demanding job. But to an outsider who's not aware of what's happening, it might look like a very, um, I wouldn't say cushy, but I think it's a de- the hours look very appealing mm. to someone and they just don't realise that you take your phone home and you're always on call and you're always thinking, as opposed to with your clinical shifts, someone will take over from you. And you may still go home and think about it and debrief within your head and have other different things to think about. But generally speaking, someone else will pick up where you've left off. And when you come back the next morning, someone will have looked after that patient for the 10 hours that you've been gone. You come back after a 10-hour break if you ever get one from research and nothing has changed. In fact, it's probably got worse. The Mm. workload is another 72 emails in the inbox to attend to as well. So I think it's... Whilst it looks like it could be a very glamorous lifestyle um, and no night duty, those sorts of things, yeah. you're probably doing the night duty in, in your head and just not getting paid <laughs> for it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it's different. Yeah. So in your clinical role, mm-hmm. um, you're in the adult ICU. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. However, you've also been involved from a consumer perspective, mm. more on the paediatric side. side. Yes. Do you want so, to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I used to do peds, um, and then my sister had twins who are now 20 years of age, and um, I was doing a bit of caring for them at the same and supporting my sister who was um, living in the country and uh, being a dairy farmer and having uh, premature twins. And I was finding it very difficult to take, not take those bugs home, the mm. kids ones. So I basically stopped doing paediatrics and haven't done it since then. Um, miss it terribly, but mm-hmm. then had my own daughter 15 years ago and things didn't go anywhere near according to plan. And um, we spent much of the first year at Monash Medical Centre, which was an adult hospital, um, one of the few places in Victoria that has an adult and a neonatal intensive care unit. So you could actually be in ICU at the same time as your child being in ICU. Mm. Um, so we had, and then Hannah was in and out of Monash for most of the first year of her life, and we still have lots of connections there to this day. So, um, so when they were looking at building Monash Children's Hospital, they approached me. I'd always been involved heavily in um, if they ever needed a consumer opinion, um, I was always helping them informally. But now in this day and age, we have consumer advisory panels involved in most hospitals in different scenarios so they asked if I would be prepared with along with another five other parents of children who had spent a significant amount of time in um, in their hospital in the Monash adult hospital to help design um, the Monash children's hospital so they nominated me for um, the neonatal area given Mm -hmm. the length of time that we had been there and uh, so yeah helped design that hospital so that was a really rewarding thing to do just to be able to give back Mm. and um, I think my experience as a nurse 
was really valuable as well mm-hmm. because whilst I could say it would be really great if parents could actually have more than just a plastic school chair to sit on while they're trying to learn how to hold this tiny, premature, very mm-hmm. unwell, sick neonate and potentially, you know, and be physically unwell themselves as well. To sit yeah. on a plastic chair day one post-Caesar yep. was an incredibly painful experience, mentally, physically, everything. Um, there was never any pillows around, so I used to bring my own pillow in and then each day have to try and find that pillow. <laughs> so it was a really um, interesting experience and one that I would never wish to go through again. And, uh, yeah, so it was great to be able to just do little things like have a chair that you could put your feet up or have a pillow that you could learn to eventually try and start to breastfeed your child because mm. it's hard enough learning to breastfeed as it is, let alone yeah. one that's got tubes everywhere and... Um, For example, in Hannah's case, she had no platelets, so I could basically not touch her, but Mm. I still wanted to breastfeed her. So how do you learn how to breastfeed but not touch your baby but not have a pillow to rest on? It just, I'm just logistically, you can't see I'm trying to action it. Sorry, (laughs) but, you know, it's just, it was just a nightmare. So um, just little things like you need to have a chair that's got good support and for the women who were, you know, feeling Mm. poorly themselves and mentally and physically. And now every single mum who comes to visit their baby will have a place that is comfortable to sit and rest Mm. and you won't be uh, there's good and bad sides to it they've opted to go for um, single rooms or double rooms or interconnecting rooms so I did actually go over to Auckland and um, do a tour over there because that's one of the best neonatal intensive care units in the world in fact so I did yeah did come over um, and have a look there that was something that I took upon myself so obviously I took my role as a consumer Mm. seriously went over and um it was amazing. I did find it a little bit isolating. That was the mm. one thing that, you know, we all went to what we called the milking shed to express for our babies and we all sat around and chatted with each other, whereas with the single rooms, all of that expressing equipment is there, ready for you. But I think the benefits outweigh the negatives of that because you get to look at your baby while you're expressing. Mm. So there's all these things that there are positives and negatives. Um And you can still meet with other mothers and parents, but let's be honest, when you've got your baby and you don't know how long you're going to have that baby for, you're not going to walk out and go and chat to other mums. You're going to spend as much time as you can with your baby. So, But it does also mean that more than one person can be at the bedside, you know, um, and just little things like tap placements. So my daughter, Hannah, had um, lots of neurosurgery, and so she always had, sometimes she had open head wounds or certainly dressings on her head. Um, and they would, you know, she was often near the sink because there was lots of hand washing and lots of dressings, mm. but the water would splash up and splash over the top of her all the time. So I'm worried about dirty hand water, washing water splashing over onto her yeah. heads and, you know, being the ICU nurse germphobe that I am, I was paranoid about it all. So, you know, having the, enough space to be able to walk freely around a cot mm. Um, mm. and have your own space without trying not to look at the baby next to you because you're trying not to invade their privacy but how can you not look at something that's right next to you so yeah so it was really nice having that consumer involvement just to be able to express those things that were important and to not to lose the communal spaces as well but Mm. to be able to have that private space to be able to have your meltdown when you need to have it to be able to try and awkwardly breastfeed when you've got no idea and you know all those sorts of things so it was really amazing so the Monash Children's Hospital is a beautiful hospital that um, has expedited so many services to a whole range of a whole different demographic 
down the southeast mm. of um, Victoria. It's amazing to now mm. that Victoria now has a choice. You do have a choice mm. between the two. It's an amazing thing. And the experience was second to none. I felt very respected. I didn't tell people that I was an ICU nurse. They eventually worked it out. But <laughs> I certainly felt very respected and my opinion was very valued mm. about what was important to a mum of a neonate. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, like you say, having the ICU background, I mean, you can yeah. never shake it, can no, you? No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> um, but taking <laughs> that into that whole experience in terms of the redesign Absolutely. or design, the design from um, floor to ceiling, yeah. and being able to look at things from a completely different perspective, not just as a mum, but as a nurse, and thinking, right. well, I know yeah. that I need X amount of PowerPoints, yep. or yes, you exactly. Know. <laughs> so, everything, all the um, clinicians' things are on one side, and all the family things are on the other side of a cot for example and you know they've got uh, little things like there's a wall of love so you can put your cards up at the you know in the pediatric in the general wards mm. there's things where you can put them because where do you ever put cards mm. they're always in the way yeah. so there's these you know there's this wall that will directly look out the patient you know when the child is in their bed that's what they look at mm. is that we've called it the wall of love and um so you know just little things like that that Mm. a clinician doesn't necessarily think of and even the mum doesn't think of or the Mm. child but when you put it all together it sort of all works so the other thing that um i did think of quite often everything was focused around the space of the child and the baby and then the family and i'm going well what about the staff Mm. where are they where's Mm. their tea and coffee facilities where's their toilet you know um Nurses will have got camel bladders, you know, they're almost sharks. They almost reabsorb their own urine, I'm sure of it, on many shifts. But if it's just a 30-second trip to the bathroom, that they can quickly duck out to do that. They're more likely to do that Mm. rather than hang on for their whole shift. Mm. Where is there a tea room? Is there somewhere they can just get a glass of water? Um, Little things like that um, were really important and none of those things have been thought of. So I think because they were so focused on making sure that everything was patient-centric. Mm. But if we don't care for our staff, how are they going to... And when we care for them, then they're going to care for the families and the patients better. So, yeah. And I think they were very surprised when that came from a consumer. What about the staff? Where are they going? And all those sorts of things. So, And then the research element as well. So where are we going to put information about research? Where are we going? How are we going to recruit patients? Where are you going to sit down and talk to them? It might need to be away from the bedside. Mm. Have, you know, and now they've got a whole floor dedicated to research, all those sorts of things. But I think when you're designing a hospital, there are so many things to think about. And yeah. I was just fortunate that, you know, I've been an ICU nurse, so a clinician, researcher and a <laughs> mum and someone with a pretty strong will so put that all together and maybe it helped a little bit I don't know but it's a pretty magical hospital and I think it just yeah. shows the benefit though of having you know multiple perspectives that Absolutely. you can draw into the one area at the very beginning yes um, because yeah. as we know um, and from experience as well of going into a new hospital people don't think right no. from the beginning and don't think long term um, don't About think expansion. through all the ramifications yep, exactly yeah. so the whole way through we were the whole way in designing the hospital and hopefully none of this is too confidential but we definitely built in places that whilst we we built in an expressing room knowing that it probably wouldn't get used that often mm. but we made sure that it was plumbed in with oxygen and suction so that 
overflow beds you could convert that room very easily Mm. yes it would become a four or a six bed ward which isn't ideal but it's better than no beds at all so if it's the choice between someone having their neonate baby taken away from them and being shipped to New South Wales or Tasmania or wherever they're going to go or going into a six bed ward in the state that you live in I'll take the six bed ward in the state that I live in where I have this support network that Mm. I need Mm. so you know, they thought that was very strange that I would ask for oxygen and suction in, um, you know, and hand washing stations, all these things in in a in expressing room. But I said to them, "You're already at capacity. You are building something that you're already going to outgrow very quickly. Mm-hmm. So let's make things as easy so that we don't have to retrofit because it's yeah. much harder to do it." So just put a panel over it so that people don't do it. I don't think many women are going to faint when they breastfeed or you know they're expressing, but it means that. If necessary, you can have an extra six babies. If there's a displan, you know, or something mm. happens that, mm. you know, if you have triplets, you can have the three babies in the one room yeah. maybe. Yeah. So, and uh, those sorts of things. They have um, a bereavement room, which is amazing, mm. rooming in rooms. Mm. So I took a neonate home having never spent a night with my child because I used to go home at midnight and be back at 6 a.m. in the morning because there was nowhere for me to sleep except that plastic school chair to sit on. So, and sitting on that from 6am till midnight was hard enough as it was, let alone, you know, um, trying to sleep, sitting up with no Mm. pillow and (laughs) and nothing to... So, you know, little things like that, that they have the rooms that, you know, are now an expectation that you'll have that you can try sleeping with your child for, you know, having them in the room with you for a night or two before you go home. Yeah. Do you think we've taken some of those sorts of thoughts, you know, and I mean, this is recent, um, mm. but into the adult intensive care design world yet? Or hard, <laughs> isn't it? I think there's more opportunities. I think we're more aware of the potential for a good death or a peaceful death. And we no longer adhere to, generally speaking, you know, to those very rigid hours of... Um, you know, uh, visiting hours, those sorts of things. I, and if someone is on that particular pathway, I think we're very um, much more aware of it and nurturing and more welcoming of family involvement and for them to stay. Um, I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, one of the things that NICU, certainly at Monash, has always done, and my understanding is that it's fairly commonplace everywhere, is that we are, in the adult world, we ask families to leave when the ward round is being done. In the NICU world, they ask the families to come in mm. when the ward round is being done. And in actual fact, it's a time saver because although you may have to explain what one or two things is, you then don't have to find a time later in that day to explain everything above and beyond. Again. Like, they're kept up to date. And, you know, um, that for me was just coming from an adult world to... Um, the neonatal intensive care world that was the thing that pleased me beyond Mm. anything else it certainly wasn't the plastic chair that pleased me it was the or the hand sinks hand washing sinks Um, it it was definitely the fact that they asked you to come in before they started the ward Mm. round and they would not start the ward round until you were there so those sorts of things I think would be I know it's challenging often in the adult world because they're an adult and you've got to respect their privacy and all those sorts of things but 
the majority of our families are well-meaning and they're genuine. And you could ask, for, certainly for the um, routine post-op patients who know they're going to have a stay in ICU following their cardiac surgery, for example, they could easily waive a consent that says, I want my wife or my children mm-hmm. or whoever to know everything about me and to speak on my behalf when mm-hmm. I'm unable to. And I would like her here, present at all those things. Um, but for some reason, we feel compelled to shield a wife of, you know, someone who they've been married for 50 years and yet we won't expose their big toe to them. And yet they've slept in the same bed for the last 50 years. So I think there's things like that, that we ask them to leave for handover. We ask them to leave for ward rounds. We ask them to leave when we're turning them. And I understand that things go wrong mm-hmm. and it's to protect them and the patient and everything. But I'm sure there has to be something in between. So, yeah. yeah. How do I we think... start those conversations? Or who do we start them with <laughs> even? You know, it's... Um... Oh, look, I think it's um, it's definitely... I think the thing is that a lot of us as clinicians feel much more at ease chatting amongst ourselves and we feel quite awkward and uncomfortable talking to family members about things that may potentially go wrong. It's about having those hard conversations. But it is hospital policies. We need to start you know chatting amongst ourselves and saying if I was in their shoes what would I want because I think we always take an arm's distance approach and we forget well if it's my mum in there my mum I know for sure would want me there Mm. um because she doesn't want to know what's going on with her she just trusts that I'll look after it so you know it's everyone's different but I think we should start to look at that and wherever possible have a chat you know we're talking about advanced care planning now with people those sorts of things so why couldn't we just ask so this is another thing would you like them to be there Mm. but it's about the approach you know we keep families up to date there's some very large families and that makes it logistically very challenging but they could nominate a spokesperson Mm. and then the spokesperson which already happens as we know but that person maybe could be there for most things Mm. yeah and again it comes back to that design that's right (laughs) yeah Um, that's not going to breach someone else's privacy all those sorts of things and yeah it's yeah yeah. Some may, ch- may choose to not do it. There were some families who didn't want to know. They'd say, just get my baby better. Mm-hmm. I, I don't need to know all the details. I clearly was not one of those person <laughs> people. But, um, but yeah, I think, it, and there'll be some families who don't want to know. They are still the mm-hmm. doctor is God and I will trust you to the end of the earth and tell me when I can pick them up mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're ready to go home. So it's different and we need to respect that culturally and um, just from each family's perspective what they want. But certainly for me, that's what I would want. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If you were um, the nurse in the bed space looking after an unwell yes. patient who yes. you can't ask, yes. <laughs> who they want yes. present, how would you go around gauging? Yeah. You know, so I already do that um, in that I, I obviously find out who the next of kin is. It's, most of it's written down now. I think we're getting better at it. We're keeping patient diaries as well, which is a really big thing as well. Um, but I think certainly we should be speaking to obviously their spouse, the, the usual routine of who the next of kin is, etc. And what would they want? What do you think? Um, and and asking them, uh, you know, what what would they want to do? Would they want you here? And, and just little things like I already to this day ask them if they would like to stay whilst I wash the relative, assuming it's a husband and wife, mm. for example, and. Have you seen, you know, his wound, his chest, you know, because some of them, the sheets are pulled up Mm. around their neck and, 
you know, but they're happy, you know, for some people it's too confronting and they don't want to, but they could easily, you know, wash their leg or they could comb their hair or, you know, simple things. They can they can do lots of mouth care without, you know, ripping out the ETT or, you know, you've got to trust your judgment. But most people are logical, normal, sane people who are frightened and they're so grateful. They're sitting at a bedside for eight or ten hours mm-hmm. a day. They're so grateful to be able to do something for their loved one. They feel so lost and they're not sick of holding a hand, but that's all they've been allowed to do for however long it is. So I think little things like, right here, here's some hand cream. Why don't you give them a little hand massage and we'll see how they're all swollen and how about we, you give them a massage and help the circulation back and then we'll pop it on a pillow. This is why we're doing it. It just takes a few seconds longer and this one's an arterial line so we need to be very careful of that because if you dislodge that one we're not going to just we're not going to have a blood pressure trace and we're not going to be able to get access to bloods and they're going to bleed out and you know there's ways obviously of saying it but most families are just so grateful to be able to do something Mm. other than sit and hold a hand they want to feel useful so you know I tell them to bring in a book and read to them or whatever it is the the, the little things give them a foot massage mm. if they're not a vascular path or you know whatever just something so that they the days are a little faster for them they're mm. such long days long long yeah. days so it's very disempowering as a mm. relative isn't it and absolutely what you can do what you can't do <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah and what to touch what not to touch what's that alarm you know mm. those sorts of things so mm. yeah And I think we're very, um, you know, obviously we're there for our patients Mm. and we're very good at focusing on our patients and what needs to be done. But like you say, it's thinking about the relatives, how you can engage them Mm. um, and teaching them along the way absolutely yeah and and they're the the memory most of our ICU patients as you know don't remember a lot about their time in there but you know they'll the the families probably have as much post-traumatic stress as what Mm. the what the patient does themselves um you know it's they're the ones that if we don't care for them they're not going to be there to care for the patient when they get out of ICU Mm. and we're blessed in ICU for the most part we have a one-to-one patient ratio so we can focus fully on that one patient they go to the ward it's one to four or whatever the ratios are at the time so you know it's a pretty hard thing for the ward nurses to keep up with the same and I don't want this to sound like ICU nurses are god or anything but how do you divide your time over four Mm. people so the expectation it's about managing expectations so if we give families the permission to assist with the care wherever it's possible it means that they're not going to be frightened to do so Mm. on the ward and it's going to help the nurses on the general ward areas or the high dependency where they're dividing themselves in half or in quarters or in eighths or whatever it is that the families are I don't need to call the call buzzer for that because I know it's okay to clean his teeth Mm. or I know it's okay to massage his foot or Mm. move his leg a little bit to the left or to the right, you know, or to pass him a tissue or it's okay for him to blow his Mm. nose. If we involve them in our care, as opposed to they're used to having someone do everything for them and then they go to the general ward area and there's not someone there all the time to do everything for them. So it's a rude awakening for them. Yeah, that's so a big step, isn't it? Yeah. Massive, massive. They're always so keen to get out of ICU and then <laughs> they get out of ICU. It's like when you move out of home for the first time and then you realise actually living at home wasn't that bad. <laughs> someone did your washing and paid the bills and yeah. seemed like a good idea to get out of ICU and now I wish I was back there just mm. for the you know for the patient ratio of nothing else. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 
You mentioned um, culture and feel of a unit mm -hmm. earlier on. Do you think <coughs> part of those um, sort of areas of patient expectation and family expectation and involvement sort of slot into the whole unit culture as well mm. in terms of how those expectations are managed as a unit? Mm. Um, yeah, look, I think every having worked in most ICUs in Victoria um, or in Metro Melbourne anyway, every hospital definitely has a different culture and a different feel. And part of that is, you know, it, it, it's from the top down or the bottom up, whichever way you wish to look at it. But it's also about where geographically the hospital is placed and what the community expectations are. Mm. The expectations at Western ICU are very different to Frankston ICU or to the Alfred or to the Austin or the Royal Melbourne or Northern. They're very, very different culturally. Um, and, you know, uh, over at the Western ICU, for example, very multicultural, they're very engaged families and, um, you know, they, they, they're big families and they want big involvements. And uh, But socioeconomically, they're a struggling unit because they're not getting um, potentially as much funding as what some of the Alfreds or the Royal Melbournes are getting. Um, so, you know, it, I think part of that is a culture of where the patients come from, where the staff catchment is from, and where the management is from as well. And it goes all the way up through government, how much mm. funding they're getting. So I think there's so many different layers to that question about culture. There's so many different things that would be very foolish foolish of us or naive or arrogant to think that it was just a one-stop. If we fix this, that will fix everything else. Because as we all know, culture and that comes from so many different elements. And I think we have to look at everything mm. around the hospital you know, in the hospital itself, where the staff come from, mm. all those things. So, mm. yeah. And yeah. how I see you interacts, you know, like you were within saying, within the different units. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. With yeah. theatre, with the emergency department, with the general wards, the high dependency units. Are there high dependency units? Does that change the acuity of patients? Can you get them out of ICU mm. faster? Is the turnover faster? Do they have a neuro HDU, a cardiothoracic unit? Do they have you know, where they take chest tubes, do they have respiratory wards, long-term ventilation wards, like all these sorts mm. of things change the dynamics of it. So it's not going to be a Band-Aid, a one-size-fits-all. It yeah. has to be what what is the best that you can do with the resources that you have and that will work well with your culture, with your family expectations, with your medical nursing staff expectations. What mm. does your CEO expect? Mm. <laughs> what does the board expect? It's mm. And within the ICU itself, what expectations are upon them? Mm. So, yeah, you yeah. have to think of so many things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, again, ICU nurses are very good at thinking of so many things, absolutely. aren't they? Yeah. We're used to juggling multiple yes. balls. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And different the different dynamics within each family even mm. as well, you know. Um, we think we've got that nailed and then the cousin from long lost cousin from somewhere comes along and changes everything completely. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. But we're pretty good at thinking on our feet. Yeah. And adapting. What um, do you find are good, you know, because not every day, of course, is a great day when no. you're an ICU nurse. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, people are exposed to some pretty harrowing scenes yeah. and, um, you know, things that go on. What do you find or have you found over the years, you know, can sort of make a difference in terms mm. of how you cope with things? Beyond the shadow of a doubt. Um, and the reason why I've been there for 25 years is your team around yeah. you. Um, and if you don't invest in that team, oh, 
it's just yeah I, I, I used to do and I now take I don't do anymore but I used to I used to do a lot of agency and it was really difficult going into a new hospital every single day mm-hmm. um, because you really are alone for a lot of the time so I think it's the team that you build and I think it's really important for management of all hospitals to recognise that that social side of it and that support is really important. And it's that's what makes the well-being of your staff even mm. just that bit more tolerable. They, you know, the reason why I still turn up to work at the Austin and I feel like I have two left feet and two right hands most times and I often don't sleep that well before the shifts although I'm getting better now having been back clinically for over five years but actually it's eight years now but certainly those first few years I was so nervous going back every single day it was quite frightening and confronting and the thing that got me there every single shift was thinking to myself the team is there with me without a doubt so whether it be that they invest in a pizza night for night duty staff or you know, that you don't get in trouble every single time you stop to have a chat to someone in the corridor or, um, you know, so because then it looks like you're not caring for your patient, but you're actually doing that by maintaining your own mental health and mental mm. well-being and the well-being of your co-workers that they feel part of a family. Mm. And that's a really, really important thing because if we're no good, then our patient care will be no good. Yeah. And that's to me, is the biggest thing of all. That's why I'm still there 25 years later. It's certainly not for the money <laughs> and it's not for the convenience mm-hmm. of uh, driving an hour and a half each way to get to work and back again now. Yeah. So it's because I feel part of the team, mm-hmm. part of the family, that um, I feel like I'm letting the team down. But I also, if I don't turn up for the shift, I mean, they can do without me, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not overestimating my own self-importance, but... I know I've got the team behind me. I've got, you know, the respect of the people working to the left and the right and the top and underneath and behind me. I'm talking the ancillary staff, the physios, Mm. the OTs, the speech pathologists, the dieticians, the the consultants, you know, everyone. It's just an amazing unit to work in. And I could go and work in Frankston ICU, which is 15 (laughs) minutes away. (laughs) And, um, yeah, but I don't because... I, it will take such a long time and I don't know that I'll ever get that collegiality when I'm only working one a fortnight. Mm, mm. And that's why I keep going back because that I've got that I've got someone's back and they've got my back. Mm. So, yeah. Good to know. Mm. <laughs> and so as well as the clinical shifts. Yes. <laughs> so the biggest proportion of, you know, your jobs yes. now, yes. although maybe not quite the biggest <laughs> Yeah, come on to the third yeah. part in a minute um, is as your role as executive officer yes. of the CTG yes um, which is a massive job and yeah. you know sounds an interesting job it's amazing <laughs> it's a fantastic job again though it is uh, obviously my employer is Anzix and that's a fantastic organization and a member-based organization obviously but my family is the clinical trials group so um, that's the reason why I come to work every day is to be part of that family. It's an even bigger family. It's in Australia and New Zealand and now it's becoming an international family <laughs> that we have lots of people who are part of that family. Mm. And that's what gets me to work and gets me up every day yeah. is, you know, that family and how can we improve the outcomes of patients in mm. intensive care. And 
you know, just being able to pay, play some very small part in that is magnificent. And Noosa every year is my docking station. People go, oh, aren't you tired? I go, oh, no, no, this is where I dock and I recharge for the year. <laughs> just getting to see everybody and the collegiality and the teamwork and the family atmosphere that is up there. And it, it gives you that I can keep going for another year. I can get through this. And I speak to so many people. Um, I get lots of phone calls. I do lots of, I'm not going to say counselling because I'm not a trained counsellor, but I do take many a phone call from, um, you know, and believe it or not, not just nurses or research coordinators, but some intensivists who are really struggling with getting a project done or getting through ethics or, you know, and I spend quite a bit of time while they're thinking about doing something and I'll say to them, hey, have you thought about doing that as a PhD? That's a big enough project. You're talking about a whole project there, not just, you know, like a whole sort of series of work there. Mm. You should be thinking about getting a higher degree, a qualification from this. So it's not just the running of study, you know, running of um, conferences and it's not just the endorsement processes and everything it's about the how can we support you better Mm. that's the part that I enjoy more than anything is the working with people and helping them improve themselves and improve the outcomes of patients and I think that's what we're all here for Mm. but knowing that you've got each other that just a look and you know what that person is thinking and you know we all understand each other and there's a mutual respect and No one is judging you or thinking, gee, you've been sitting in your office for a long time. How come you you aren't out on the floor? And inside you're thinking, I wish I was out on the floor, (laughs) not not doing this ethics submission or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, So, yeah, um, filling out that protocol violation or that SAE report or, you know. um, So, yeah, so that is the most amazing – the clinical trials group is the most amazing network Mm. of – highly skilled highly trained highly motivated enthusiastic people and and i learned from the best you know i worked Mm. for ronaldo for 10 years so it doesn't get much busier faster harder full-on than that and um and i think that's made every other job since then a lot easier Mm. for me um doing that i feel like i could do most jobs (laughs) so yeah yeah and i think the um clinical trials group um reflects the ICU community Absolutely. that it serves um, in yeah. terms of being a very multidisciplinary, Absolutely. inclusive group Absolutely. that um, Absolutely. You know, is keen to develop yep. people. Absolutely. And it's, a, it's definitely a network. You know, Lizzie Skinner, the physio over at Western and that. There's, I still get messages from her and contact and those sorts of things. And, and Carol Hodgson's over here at the, over at the ANZIC RC. And we worked together clinically back in St Vincent's days, back mm. in 95, you know, when she was pregnant with her twins, for example. Those sorts of things. Like it, there's a real network and a real family feel about mm. it. Um, but we are all striving to achieve what is best for the best outcomes and to question everything mm. to question because if we don't question we're just we're never going to grow and improve yeah. and that's an amazing footprint to leave behind you know the human race is destroying lots of things in the environment and that's a whole nother podcast mm. isn't it but, um, <laughs> but you know it's nice to be able to leave a positive footprint behind mm. not a negative one so yeah. and and I'm not overestimating my input to that at all it's a team effort but even just one little small thing mm. that if we could all just do one little thing improve the outcome by one millimeter that's yeah. a really great thing and I think that's what all of us at the CTG are trying to mm. do that CTG family yeah 
you know, when someone comes to Noosa for the first time, I say to them, welcome to the CTG family, you know, and that's what it is. Everyone is there to help mm. each other. So, yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, everyone's doing it for love, not Absolutely. money. <laughs> it's definitely not for money. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, what do you so. think some of the challenges are for the CTG in the next, Ooh, you know, couple are, of there years? There are many, so. as there always are. I think the biggest thing for the CTG community as a whole is definitely going to be the funding, the change within Australia. I, mm. I can't comment too much on New Zealand because you guys seem to be going great guns. And uh, in comparison to us, we're, we're not really completely sure exactly where we're going with the NH and MRC and the MRFF. Mm. Um, where, are our, where are our funding streams going to come from now and into the future? And, um, you know, amazing centres like here, the ANZIC RC, uh, where's their future money going to come from? Uh, we've been, you know, so fortunate in our funding success through NHMRC for good reason, and we have saved enormous amounts of money in terms of clinical care. Um, so the government has done incredibly well out of that money. Don't get me wrong, but the tide is definitely turning, mm. and we're not. I don't believe that we're really exactly sure which door to knock on mm. anymore we used to know there was this one big door and you'd knock and everyone would knock at the same time yeah. and they'd let a certain number of people through um now i feel like there's maybe potentially some side windows and some back doors and those sorts of things it's a lot more potentially a lot more political in the way that we are able to obtain funding and i think it's going to need to have a quite a big change and a lot of thinking about the way the ctg approaches funding because as we all know, we can't do it without it. Yep. Um, and, you know, the pharmaceutical research, which we all have, or most of us have done at some stage, um, and we do it because we believe that the products may potentially help patients. But being honest, we also do it because it does financially assist the other research that we do, the investigator-driven, especially the small single-centre studies, mm -hmm. that they're, they're the little pilots, is this a feasible study to do, that then end up becoming the big safe and the NICE mm -hmm. and the renal and the DECRA studies, all these sorts of things. Without us dipping our toe in that water, and we relied very heavily back in the 90s and the turn of the century, I feel very old when I say <laughs> that, don't I? Know. But, uh, you know, back then we could rely upon the pharmaceutical mm -hmm. research at least paying for a research coordinator's time, yeah. that we weren't so focused on how much the NH and MRC studies were paying, whereas now we have to because that's our only source of funding. So we need to be able to cover wages and printing and electronics and on costs and everything else. So, yeah, it's. Um, I think that's probably our biggest challenge that's mm. facing us. We have an amazing loyal community that will do whatever it takes we just need to dedicate some time to working out what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. So, And yeah. it will be an ongoing battle. Absolutely. <laughs> Funding is always an ongoing battle. Nothing has ever been any different. But, um, yeah, I think that's going to be the thing for ANZICs and uh, the clinicians mm. themselves to or researchers to be thinking about mm. into the future. Yeah. And so circling back almost to the beginning yes. of this conversation now, yep. I mentioned that you'd driven up from the Mornington Peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> and so the latest um, adventure, you know, adventure mm. in mm. Donna's life. <laughs> Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Oh, and sure, how that I don't need about. to. I'm not sure it's so <laughs> professional, but a little bit more personal, I suppose. Um, 
So having done my um, undergraduate and then my postgrad certificate and postgrad diploma in intensive care, uh, critical care, and then did an honours year and then a master's in nursing, I then thought that I would do an MBA. Um, my partner was doing an MBA and he seemed to be taking a very long time to do so. So I said to him, oh, these nights are getting very lonely with you studying, maybe I'll do it as well. So I jumped on the bandwagon and um, did my MBA. And it, it opened my eyes to a whole nother world. Um, just thinking about businesses in a different way and um, we've uh, had for quite some years now a holiday house on the Mornington Peninsula and um, a house in Melbourne so I lived in Melbourne and on weekends I was down on the peninsula and so we were looking for something in between with a bit of land that because we've always liked to grow our own veggies and those sorts of things eat seasonal produce um, yeah and then at the end of last year a property sort of halfway between the two came on the market and it's called Benton Rise Farm and it's a little farm gate uh, property that um, runs on the weekends out of a 1910 Red Rattler train so sells all local produce so we don't grow everything that we sell there but what we do is we support local farmers um, who aren't big enough to have a farm gate themselves but have beautiful locally organically grown um, fresh produce but as we all know wages are your biggest thing so they can't afford to have someone standing at a gate waiting to serve people so we go and collect or my partner Tony goes and collects all the um, produce on Fridays um, and uh, we have market staff uh, gardeners who uh, harvest all of our produce on Fridays and then on Saturdays and Sundays we welcome about 300 customers through our farm gate doors into this tiny little red rattler train and we sell um, our own and other local farm gate produce to mm. locals and tourists. So, um, so it's helping the local farmers and it's also helping customers because they don't want to drive and don't have mm. the time to drive to 30 different farm gates to get their apples and then to get their zucchinis or their capsicums from different yeah. growers and their cabbage from there. and. So yeah, so we're bringing the best of the peninsula together and in the one spot helping local farmers and helping consumers eat seasonally fresh locally grown produce. So That's as amazing. much as it sounds hard work, it must be a lot of fun. It's great fun. Yeah. And we have the most, ama again, the thing that is the most attractive thing about this is the same as the reason why I turn up to work at the Austin ICU and at the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group is the community. Mm -hmm. You know, our first weekend there, we were welcomed with baked pies and beautiful, delicious carrot cakes with welcome signs on it. And... You know, it's just the most beautiful community feel. They are people who understand that uh, we will never sell bananas <laughs> because we can't grow them on the peninsula down there. Um, and you won't get zucchinis for six months of the year. Yeah. So you will eat something else instead because that's what yeah. Mother Nature has given us. So, you know, and they're all hanging out. How many more weeks till tomatoes, Donna? How many? <laughs> so we've now got avocados and strawberries, so I've appeased them a little bit, but tomatoes and garlic are coming. So it's just the most beautiful community feel it's yeah. just amazing so yeah. yeah it's it's like going to work without going to work it's lovely mm. it's like again I'm so blessed everywhere I've worked um, I work amongst a community of amazing people mm. that make my life a pleasure mm. it's great it's wonderful it's not like working at all because people often say so that what you means you work seven days a week I go oh, no I don't work at all <laughs> I just come and be amongst family yeah. it's just very big families. I have yeah. a very big family, lots of very different families. So, yeah. Oh, I love that example, you know, yeah. in terms of the families and the communities sort of aspect Absolutely. and, yeah, being able to mould that into 
all the varying aspects of your very busy life. It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so thank you. Cool. Uh, oh, well, thank yeah. you for that. And You're it's welcome. been really interesting to have a chat. Yes. <laughs> and we could keep up. going, couldn't we, yeah, for exactly. a very long time. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're ever down in the Mornington Peninsula... Drop in and see me. Drop yeah, in. Yeah, please. Yeah. 150 Cool Art Road. Too wrong. <laughs> there we go. We'll put up thank an you. ad. No, please. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. I loved hearing Donna's wisdom regarding involving patients and families, in particular in the ICU. As she says, those are long days for families at the bedside, and if we don't care for relatives, they won't be able to care either for themselves or for their loved ones once they leave the ICU. And have you ever considered that what we are doing by enabling them in ICU has a flow-on effect to the ward and our colleagues out there also? Pretty important stuff. I also love how Donna speaks of her many families. Again, have you ever considered how your workplace becomes your family? How we all contribute to that family in some way or another? And that family is hugely important. After all, we spend around 40 hours a week together and go through some fairly trying times. Remembering how important the support of the team is and the social side um, and aspect of our roles is vital in order that we can improve our sense of well-being and a family in that environment and thus improve the care we deliver to our patients. Thanks for listening again. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.